Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Fiona Bennett. And I'm Michael Schaefer. Lovely to see you, Fee. Very nice to be back oh. with you this month. Uh, uh, the relief is enormous. <laughs> I thought you did a great job. I, I really enjoyed last month's episode, which was fantastic. Selena Golden, what a force of nature she is. Wow. Absolutely wonderful, wasn't it? Yeah. So you've been busy, Michael, and I don't imagine in the brief time we have here, there's a way to speak about what you've been doing, but I did let everybody know where you were. And uh, I think you're coming up to the last few performances of Grenfell, aren't you, in the words of Survivors, as it's fully titled? Yeah, we've got um, seven more performances. This is our last week. And I mean, it really has been the most extraordinary experience that um, sort of goes beyond, you know, just being a play and getting to know some of the survivors who have contributed to the play and representing them and their voices and their story has been just incredible, actually. And it's, I am a bit lost for words about it, actually. And I think it's really only when I get out the other side that I'll be able to fully process it. We are going to be filming it for NT at Home, National Theatre at Home, which is their subscription service. And you can also do a sort of pay-per-view, I believe. So that will be available for people all around the world if uh, they wanted to see it and to, to learn about that story. Yeah, it's going to leave quite a, quite a void. Well, congratulations to you and the whole team that's put that piece of work together. I was lucky enough to see it and um, experience the full power of that piece. It's really extraordinary. So without further ado, <laughs> I feel we should head towards this fabulous episode that we've got to share with everybody. We're lucky enough to speak to this wonderful guest based in America. So dear listeners, you'll be listening to John and Andrea talking about Little Champion by Tony Hoagland, the poem that's been a friend to Michael. So shall we dive in, Andrea, do you think? Yes, yes. Well, we have the poem um, that is a friend to you in front of us, Mm -hmm. and we would love for you to read it. Happy to. When I get hopeless about human life, which quite frankly is far too difficult for me. I like to remember that in the desert there is a little butterfly that lives by drinking urine. And when I have to take the bus to work on Saturday or spend an hour opening the mail deciding what to keep and what to throw away one piece at a time, I think of the butterfly following its animal around through the morning and the night, fluttering, weaving sideways through the cactus and the rocks. And when I have to meet all Tuesday afternoon with the committee to discuss new bylaws or listen to the dinner guest explain his recipe for German beer or hear the scholar tell again, about her campaign to destroy once and for all the cult of heteronormativity. I think of that tough little champion with orange and black markings on its wings, resting 
in the shade beneath a ledge of rock while its animal sleeps nearby. And I see how the droplets hang and gleam among the thorns and drab green leaves of desert plants and how the butterfly alights and drinks from them deeply with a stillness of utter concentration. Magnificent. <laughs> that is something, isn't it? You don't come across many poems with the word urine in it. <laughs> no, you don't. Right. And it's critical in the poem, isn't it? It's so, I'm so happy that you mentioned that right off. Because it is that paradox. Because it's giving life, it's nourishing this beautiful butterfly. But we think of it as waste. And so I think that is the fulcrum by which the entire poem moves left and right in all directions. Is asking us to reconsider. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it from that angle of like that it's for us, it's waste. But actually, the poem as a whole is kind of about, I guess, that sense of a different kind of value. Yes, indeed. And, and, and it's about a shift in perspective, which I think the whole poem is about. We well, even think about the title. It's paradoxical. Little. Champion. We think of our champions as large, larger than life. No, no, no. Little champion. So heartening for somebody who is not physically or mentally strong, perhaps. And still, maybe you too can be a champion. So from the very onset, the poet is, and the speaker are challenging us and, and I think comforting us. You know, right from the start, when I get hopeless about human life, and that's comforting, I'm in contact with a voice that is sharing. But to me, it's such a human voice. And so I start to trust. When did you first come across this friend? Mm. And did all of that grab you at first? I first came upon the poem in the magazine, The Sun, which is my favorite publication. It's a lifestyle magazine where they publish two sometimes, one sometimes poem, maybe some three, but not many. And I felt in the company of someone seeing me. I mean, that was 2014 and I still have that issue. I kept that issue. I don't think I understood cognitively what I felt was authenticity. I felt a comfort, I felt a truth, I felt a sense, but I don't think I felt that I knew of all the technique, the craft, which I care greatly about. Because I want to find out what, it's like you say a friend, you want to know what's behind that friend. Can I trust that friend? This one is telling me to trust. And well, if somebody says to you, well, honestly, once somebody says honestly to me, I go, uh-oh. But it was a voice. And then I went ahead and I deconstructed it. You want to know something amazing about this poem, I think. It's only three sentences. <laughs> That's pretty remarkable. That is yeah. remarkable. Yes, I did not notice that. The first yeah. two, and then there's this long, long one, which has, you know, parenthetical clauses all in the way that we might say to a buddy, you know, you see something and you kind of tilt over and you whisper. There's a lot of those parenthetical phrases in here that keeps it going. But you don't notice it. 
I, I liken it to the butterfly where you think it's going to land, but no, 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 it goes on. You think it's going to land, but no, 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 the nature, right? And that's what this poem is doing. So I want to go back to something you said about the poem when you first read it. You said you felt seen. Mm. You felt the poem saw you. What do you mean by that? Uh... I've had some challenges growing up. I had a 65% hearing loss that wasn't detected till I was 12. So the world was far from me. I had a sight problem that wasn't detected till I was 13. And I had a speech impediment. And I still have some remnants. This poem talks about the ability to survive out in the desert. So I felt like I was that butterfly on some level, surviving. And um, so that's how I was seen, Andrea. You know, not, not that anybody should feel sorry for me. For, I, I feel very fortunate in my life. But that beginning, it still stays with me, I have to say. And that's why I think I was seen, if that makes any sense. It does, it does. It's mm. beautifully put. And, you know, this creature, this little champion, you know, it's so vulnerable. It's so small. It's, it's in the desert. And yet it's found its way to survive. It's found its animal. Mm. My question is, what is the animal? That's exactly what I was going to ask. That's exactly what I was going to I'm ask. I'm going to ask what you guys that. You guys tell me what the animal is. I'll tell you what I think the animal is. What do you think, John? Well, it's so lovely that I hadn't almost noticed that. I hadn't noticed that it wasn't named until you put it. Uh, I don't know, I've got a hippo in my mind, but I've no idea why. I think I'm thinking maybe, I think I'm getting that idea of like birds on hippos. Mm, mm. For me, the animal is imagination. Oh. That's me. That's how I think I survived those, those years. And I think that's what's going on with the speaker. When I get hopeless about human life, which quite frankly is far too difficult for me, I like to remember, like a conjuring. For me, the imagination, because I could not see as well, and I could not hear as well, I lived in that little small world, that world. That was my world. And then at the end, while its animal sleeps nearby, the animal is at rest and peaceful. I love that the animal is at peace and restful. And the butterfly is not really beautifully described, but the most beautiful part I see is about the urine. I see how the droplets hang and gleam. So the most beautiful part is that which we go, wait a second, survive on urine? As you said, that's not a common word in poetry. And maybe the animal is providing for this. So there is this harmony, but it shifts the perspective. You've got this sleepy animal and then this quite sort of strikingly bright butterfly yeah. fluttering around. It's a, it's a great visual image. I like what you just said a lot about the fluttering. Because in the poem, the speaker is talking about how linear time is, in a way. When I have to take the bus 
on Saturday. Saturday, you take the bus to work? Okay. But I guess that's what you have to do in human life, right? Deciding what to keep and what to throw away at the table and the mail. You can just imagine this stacks of like, this is what I have to do. I have to do this. In contrast to the, to the fluttering, which is you know, moving and dancing in the air, this progression that we need to take. And it's just hopeless for the speaker. And in contrast with this, the butterfly that is just pretty much dancing and floating and living and existing now, 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 now. I love that contrast. I mean, this is the mental construct of the human versus the butterfly floating along, following its animal in the desert. It's a conjuring of, of wanting that connection, of reaching in for the animal within us. There, the simplicity of us, the, uh, the, the knowledge of what we have, caked under the concrete of every day. But the butterfly living in the desert, I think that it's this hope of to get me through these meetings with the committee and them doing the mail and listening to the, the speakers speak and just getting through the day. I, you know, I, I'll do that sometimes. I don't know if you will. In the dentist chair, I'll say, okay, how am I going to get through this? Um, and I start to just daydream and go to places that I want to be. I, I was very moved by what you said about your earlier life too, how, how long it took for people around you to recognize the hearing loss and the sight uh, problems too. Take me back there. I grew up um, with my mom, my dad, and my brother uh, in Queens, New York. And um, I had a skill. I had a sense of where during a ball game, if I were playing baseball, where the ball was going before it was hit. And I would go there. And it's something that, you know, they say you compensate, you know. And so I had a sense where if I was playing a certain position, say third base, that the batter was going to hit it a little closer to the shortstop. I would slide over and boom, there would be the ball. I was such a good athlete that... It disguised the fact that I couldn't see or hear. Now, I was born with those issues, so I couldn't compare. Hey, my eyes are getting worse. No, they were always that way, according to the doctors. And when I had my operations on my ears, I said, oh my gosh, I can hear them talking to me. I can hear what they're saying in the other room when they're not talking to me. So before that, I was just in my own head. And I was supported by the fact that I was a good athlete. I was welcomed by people. I had a place in society. I also was seen as a sunny disposition and likable. Yep, I was likable. And I used that too. So until the time when a guy came around with a hearing test and gave all the children the hearing test, and the first few times they said, well, Michael's not paying attention again. He's looking out the window again. You got to raise your hand when you hear the beeps. 
And I wasn't because I couldn't hear the instructions. They couldn't believe it. How is he that unable to hear? Until they did it again and again and again, they recognized, no, he's got a problem. So we, there was surgery. I still didn't do all that well in school, though. <laughs> ah. Michael, you talked about when you met the poem and the relating to it as kind of a, a way of surviving almost. Can you continue that story a bit on for us then? I, I hope this answers the question, but it brings to mind uh, a dog that we had. A Newfoundland, you know that breed, they're enormous. This is 120 pounds, Jesse. Beautiful, looks like a bear. Gorgeous and gentle, a gentle giant. And Jesse went blind in around her ninth year. And I was just so worried. And I didn't want to take her out of the house because, oh my God, she'll bump into things and she's very strong and she'll step in the wrong thing. And my God, pull me into trap. And she would, even in the house, bump into things. And I go, oh no, oh no, oh no. Oh my gosh, oh my, watch out, watch out. But the tail, this beautiful black tail, plume, gorgeous plume, waving back and forth, telling me it's okay. And so I started calling Jesse my guru. <laughs> because it's okay. It is this way. For the speaker in the poem, they must go to work. And even on Saturday. And they must endure the boring agains of conversations and committees, even German beer. <laughs> but there is this other place to go. There's a, the physical but there's a spiritual. So I go back to my guru, my Jesse, to tell me it's okay, it's okay. It makes life easier. And this is not only what we see that is here. So for this, when I read this poem, I felt you are dealing with reality. It's not made up that you didn't hear that well. It's not made up that you didn't see that well. You need to deal with this. You need to accept this on some level. Not that you have to like it, but accept it in order to persevere, survive. How do you do that? Imagination. You know, for me, it was imagination. I think for the speaker, it's imagination. Yeah, it's very conversational and very embedded in, in everyday life. Um, and when I have to take the bus to work on Saturday, yeah, and all of those little mundane things, he doesn't try to make it super poetic. He just makes it conversational, you know, um, having a coke like with a you friend. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Right? No, no, I'm not putting on airs here. I'm complaining. Life is tough. And let me tell you what I do. And I think that's clear-eyed. You know, some of our friends, they want so much for us not to suffer that they may inadvertently negate what we're dealing with. Oh, it's not so bad. Oh, you'll get over it. All with good intentions. But this voice, this friend says, 
yeah, it's tough. You're out in the desert. You, you don't have a lot of choices. But think this way, maybe? About this butterfly? Uh, I think, I think it's clear-eyed. I think it's hopeful. And I think it's encouraging. Little Champion by Tony Hoagland When I get hopeless about human life, which quite frankly is far too difficult for me, I like to remember that in the desert there is a little butterfly that lives by drinking urine. And when I have to take the bus to work on Saturday or spend an hour opening the mail, deciding what to keep and what to throw away one piece at a time, I think of the butterfly following its animal around through the morning and the night, fluttering, weaving sideways through the cactus and the rocks. And when I have to meet all Tuesday afternoon with the committee to discuss new bylaws, or listen to the dinner guest explain his recipe for German beer, or hear the scholar tell again about her campaign to destroy once and for all the cult of heteronormativity, I think of that tough little champion with orange and black markings on its wings, resting in the shade beneath a ledge of rock while its animal sleeps nearby. And I see how the droplets hang and gleam among the thorns and drab green leaves of desert plants, and how the butterfly alights and drinks from them deeply, with a stillness of utter concentration. That was John with the gift reading at the end there. And of course, uh, huge thanks to Michael for giving us that fantastic conversation and allowing us to share it with you. And to Grey Wolf Publishing for giving us permission to use that incredible Tony Hoagland poem. And it appears in a fantastic collection, which is entitled Application for Release from the Dream. And I'm going to be doing what we're often inviting our listeners to do, um, which is making sure I get myself a copy of that collection. With a title like that, you've, you've got to go for that collection fee. I love that. That's great. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I do also, of course, Michael, want to invite people to find out more about Michael Mark, our guest's poetry. And indeed, he has a fabulous chapbook entitled Visiting Her in Queens is More Enlightening Than a Month in a Monastery in Tibet. And that won the Rattle Prize. And we'll be putting information about Michael's work, his writing, his thinking, his interviews. He's got a lovely website. And we'll put the details for that on the description page. To make listeners aware, if you haven't noticed already, something we've been wanting to get properly organized for a long while has been transcriptions of the podcast just to support and make sure that anybody who wants or needs that additional text resource can engage fully with the episode. So you should be able to find that there. There'll be a little button for you and you'll be able to download or access a text version of the whole episode. That's really great. Thanks, Faye. So I was thinking about an extra poem today and I thought, oh, I think what, what Michael was talking about in that poem about the real power and place 
of imagination to change our entire psyche. And I, I thought about Emily Dickinson and I came across this extraordinary poem that I hope you're going to enjoy, Michael. It's called I Started Early, Took My Dog by Emily Dickinson. I started early, took my dog and visited the sea. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me and frigates in the upper floor extended hempen hands, presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe and past my apron and my belt and past my bodice too and made as he would eat me up, as holy as a dew upon a dandelion's sleeve. And then I started too, and he, he followed close behind. I felt his silver heel upon my ankle, then my shoes would overflow with pearl, until we met the solid town. No one he seemed to know, and bowing with a mighty look at me, the sea withdrew. That's about all we've got time for this month. We'll be back with you next month with more Poems as Friends. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye.